I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn once again to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. It's going to be 1 Samuel chapter 15. We are rounding out our study of uh, this incredible book. And we're finishing up with uh, this sermon and then another sermon next week. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're given a, a picture of God. A picture of God that is unlike any picture Uh, that the world has ever known about God. Um, Most of the ancient cultures that were surrounding um, the the Israelites of this day, they had a certain conception of God. And uh, what many of them did was they looked around at their culture, they looked around at the individuals that were there, they looked at their strong and mighty kings, and they said, well, our God must be like that strong person, that great person. God must be like that incredible man. And so they would fashion their gods after man. Uh, I heard Charles Stanley say this in a sermon, uh, and I'm sure he got it from somewhere, that in Genesis, uh, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man's been returning the favor by creating God in man's image. Uh, Well, the picture that first Samuel gives us in the prophet Samuel who's writing this that he gives us of God, it, 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 it kind of blows our expectations out of the water. Um, last week we met a God of holiness and justice who commands the complete and total annihilation of a people group, man, men, women, children, animals. And we looked at the reasons for that, and, and it made us uncomfortable, and yet uh, we need to understand that God is a God of love But he's also a God of justice that punishes sin. And actually, God's love only looks as great as it does with the backdrop of his holiness and justice in place. If you merely have a God of love, uh, then you don't have a God who has to sacrifice anything for you. And we saw that last week. This week, we see the God who has regrets. Um, and, And this is really kind of shocking for us. Uh, this idea of God having regrets. But God isn't like us. We have lots of regrets. Um, some of you are regretting that you came to church this morning. I understand that, right? But, but we have lots of things that we regret all throughout our lives. How can an all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient God have regrets like we do? Well, this passage explains that for us. And we see that God is a God who has regrets even in the midst of his omniscience, of his all-knowing nature. And actually, this becomes a wonderful source of comfort for his people. Let's read this uh, together. Uh, This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 10, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 23. And then I'm also going to read verse 29 for us. Hear God's good and kind word to you today. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. 
And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought from them the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And now verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now we need help. From the Lord and understanding His Word. Pray with me. Our great God, the true glory of Israel and of the church, we pray that you would help us to understand your character, that we would see your greatness, your glory, your wonder, your majesty, and that we would behold it in, this, in your Son, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage to plumb the very depths of your character, gasping for your grace and mercy, coming up because of your great love for us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see who you truly are today through this passage. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to see this passage in in, in three different ways. First of all, we're going to see God's disposition. Uh, That is his emotional state. And he clearly explains that to us, God's disposition. Secondly, we're going to see God's ultimate desire. And then thirdly, God's decision. So firstly, God's decision or disposition. Uh, What is God like? What is his character? Well, we learn about God against the backdrop of Saul's actions. Right before this, in verse 8, we're told this. Now Saul, was he attacked the Amalekites as we saw last week. And then what did he do? Well, verse eight, well, he was supposed to kill all of them, remember? Uh, well, verse 8, we see his disobedience. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Uh, so what we're told here, and this is one of those cringe-worthy moments, is that um, God's people, they destroyed the men, the women, and the children. 
but they kept the things that would make them rich. They kept the things against God's commandment, the things that would pad their own pockets, uh, because that's what the cattle meant to this, uh, these people. That was their well-being. That was their wealth. And if they had these things, then they could be more wealthy. Um, you see, they were more concerned about their happiness and their well-being than God's command. And so we see that, that they did these things for themselves. And that's the backdrop uh, to what God is experiencing and feeling in this. The backdrop is Saul's disobedience. Uh, in this passage, it's, it's meant to be funny to us because Saul uh, kind of puts his feet down and he, he stands his ground. And when, when Samuel comes to him and says, you have not obeyed the Lord, Saul says twice, but I have obeyed. If you look at it from the angle that I'm looking at it from, I, I have done exactly what the Lord has wanted, except in these small little things. Saul obeyed partially, which you and I need to understand is not obedience. Saul was disobedient to the Lord. Uh, and so what happens? God responds to Saul's disobedience with regret. In verse 11, he says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, when you and I hear that, or at least whenever I hear that, let me, say, let me not put this in, in your court, but when I hear that, something happens in my head. I read that the Lord says that he regrets something, and it's almost like I'm listening to a radio station, and, and you go through a period of static, and, and there's static in my head because something just doesn't quite match up. God says that he has regrets. And so, uh, you know, whenever that happens and you're listening to the radio, you, you, you reach down and you kind of tune it a little bit to see if you're getting the frequency just right. Well, we need to do that today. We need to kind of tune the radio a little bit to understand what God means when he says he has regrets. So what do we make of this? Well, very often what we do is we like to put God in a box. And we like to say, God, you have to meet my expectations of what you're like. And so because of our upbringing, because of the way that we think, because of the many cultural influences that we have, we tend to think that God cannot be a God who has regrets. We put him in a box. We say that either God has foreknowledge or... God has regrets. If he doesn't have foreknowledge, then he doesn't have power over the events of the future. And if God has regrets, then, then he has regrets, but he doesn't have any power to change the things of the future. So either we're left with an all-powerful God that isn't affected by his creation, or we're left with a God who isn't all-powerful, who's just like us, who isn't worthy of worship. We tend to think in these two ways. God either has foreknowledge or he has regret. He can't be all-knowing and also have regret. And this is a paradox for us. God is a God who is sovereign over everything in the world, and yet he has an emotion, an emotional response to what his people do. God is sovereign, and, he's also, uh, and people are also responsible uh, to that God. Uh, God is sovereign in choice, in election, but that does not negate our human responsibility. That's another paradox that we face. Well, in order to understand what's happening, we actually need to understand this word that's used, the word for regret. It's the, the Hebrew word nakam, 
and it's used a hundred times in uh, in the Old Testament. So it's used actually quite a bit of times uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and what you find as you, if you survey this word as it's used a hundred different times, it's translated uh, in a many different ways. It's a lot like our word sor- sorry. That's actually one of the words that's used to translate uh, this word nakam. It it means that God is sorry for something. And so think about the way that you use the word sorry. Uh, very often you'll be in a conversation with someone and and they'll be telling you about the hard circumstances of their life, and what do you say? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you haven't done anything wrong, but you're experiencing something. You're trying to show an empathy or a sympathy for the harsh circumstances that that person is going through. We also use it whenever we do something wrong, and we say, I'm sorry. I didn't realize the implications of what I was doing. I'm sorry for those things. So it's a word that's much like that word, sorry, has a wide variety of meanings. And so sometimes it's translated as sorry. Sometimes it's translated as repentance. Sometimes it's translated as regret. Uh, and depending on your translation, depending on who the, the people that translated your Bible from the original Hebrew into the translation that you have, they're going to use a wide variety of words uh, for that. So some of you say, the Lord doesn't just say that I regret, but he says, I repent which actually sounds even stronger than the word regret because we think of repentance as God doing something wrong or sinful and he's repenting of that because that's how we repent. Or to regret, to do something wrong and regret that we did it. Okay, To feel bad that we did something. Oh, I regret that decision that I made. Um, it also can mean to comfort. And so God says, I comfort myself sometimes with various things. But here... God is using this word in the same way that it's used in Genesis 6-6. If you go all the way back there, which you don't have to do, but maybe write it down for homework later on this this afternoon and read there that that God is looking at his creation in Genesis 6 and the wickedness of mankind because every inclination of his heart is only evil all the time. And what does God say? He says, I regret that I made mankind. And then he responds by saying, well, I'm going to wipe them out. And he sends the flood, except that he decides to save the human race through one man, Noah, and his family. That's the first use of that word. So this word has a long history. And we see the character of God in this. That God is a God who has regrets. So in this, what does God mean? Well, actually, what God means here. It's not that he didn't know the outcome of what he was going to do. God knew and told the people that when he made Saul king, that everything that's come to pass was going to come to pass. He actually told them through the prophet Samuel that they were going to be disobedient, that they were going to turn away from him. And in fact, the very act of wanting a king was an act of disobedience. He knew it all along that was going to happen. And he did what he did, making Saul king, knowing that it was going to hurt his people. Why did he do that? Well, parents and teachers understand this. Every single day, we have to take Tiger, this wonderful, bundling joy of all boy, at 14 months old, and strap him into something, because if he's not strapped in, he will be hurt, and he hates it. And I, as a parent, have to take him and say, this is for your good. I don't like doing it. 
I don't like it whenever Amy has to take his temperature and stick that thing in his ear and he fights, but it's for his good. I don't like changing his diaper, right? But, but it's for his good that we do these things, okay? We do things that we don't necessarily like for the good of the ones that we love. And, and in the same way that God is looking at his people and saying, I've given you what you've wanted, uh, parents of teenagers understand this really well because your teenagers will dig their heels in and say, I know what I want more than you know what I want. And you say, fine, do it. And then everything turns out wrong, and you get to say, I told you so. Now, if you would just listen to me. And we see something of that there. It isn't, it isn't that parents enjoy seeing their children fail, or they enjoy having to do the hard thing and giving their children what they want. But sometimes we do that for their good, and that's what we see here with God. God is doing what he doesn't want to do for the greater good of showing his people how much he loves him. He loves them. So how should we respond to this? Well, some people hear this and they ignore it. Some people hear this and they say, ah, ah that static is just too much. Let's just change the channel and, and avoid it altogether. We shouldn't do that. But we also shouldn't deny that this is who our God is. This is a wonderful and full picture of God, a picture that no other religion has. We need to understand that God is a God who loves us and has an emotional response and is affected by our actions in a way that does not take away from his sovereignty. Well, what should that make you do? Well, that should make you fall on your knees and worship in praise to a God that is far beyond our comprehension. I also want you to recognize here that God's purposes are never thwarted. His purposes never end. And even though he has regrets, his purposes are exactly going to come about as he intends them to come about. That's great news for us. So there, in that first section, we see God's disposition. Secondly, he goes on from there and he tells us about his desire. Uh, We need to ask this question, why is God so bent out of shape? Why is God so upset with Saul? After all, on the surface, it looks like Saul has done a very good thing. If God is for the well-being of his people, well, they have made themselves rich by keeping all of these cattle. And on top of that, they're certainly going to sacrifice some of these cattle to the Lord. Why is God so bent out of shape about these things? After all, this is going to benefit his people. This is going to benefit God. It's a win-win uh, and everybody's happy. Well, God is teaching us something that's very important about him and who he is. See, God doesn't care that much about your sacrifice. And, and on top of that, you and I need to hear this as well, that God is not ultimately primarily concerned about our happiness. That is a shock to us to hear. But it's the only thing that actually makes sense of suffering in this world. As God's people... We are not called, first and foremost, to a life of happiness. Now, happiness is the result of worshiping God, of being in relationship with Him. And yes, God does ultimately want for us to be happy, but we have a skewed reality of what actually makes us happy because we think that the things of this world are the things that will make us happy. So, like the Israelites, we keep some of the wealth for ourselves because they think that wealth is going to make them happy. They think that that just doing a little bit of the sacrifice to God is the thing that's going to make them happy, that's going to get God on their side. 
And we're actually told here that, that Saul disobeys in two ways that we disobey God all the time. Uh, in verse 11, he says uh, that Saul did this. First of all, he turns away from God. And then secondly, uh, that he did not perform his commandments. So Saul ultimately is turning away from God by sinning, saying, God, I know what I want better than you know. Basically, Saul is saying, I'm God, and you can't tell me what to do. And then secondly, he's directly disobeying the commandments of God. Uh, And then all through this passage, there are these funny little things that are thrown in that, that are more ironic than they are funny. But, you know, in verse 12, we're told this, that Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument to himself. A few chapters before, Saul never makes an altar to the Lord, but he's more than happy to build a monument to himself. So what's happening there? This is Mount Carmel. Um, This is actually one of the high places of Israel where sacrifices to Baal happen all the time. Uh, Saul goes to this pristine area. It's a plateau in Israel, and it overlooks a lot of the land, and there's a lot of other worship that's happening there. And Saul looks at maybe even... The, a monument to Baal that's there, a monument that would have been used for child sacrifice and those things. And he sets up a monument to himself right next to the worship of Baal. And then he goes on to his home to Gilgal. Well, Saul is disobedient to God because he says, I'm, I know what's better, I can do what I want. He, he actually sets himself up against God in his sin. And we see something of this in modern politics, don't we? Uh, especially today as we, you know, you watch the news and you see what these politicians are doing to try to get into office, to try to get the power of the, uh, the presidency. Uh, and what do we do as poor plebeians stuck here in Clinton, Louisiana, watching these things happening? We get bitter because we look at these politicians and we know that all they're, they're just, they're just uh, power or power hungry and that's all they want is power, power, power. And And it kind of goes to their head. We understand that. And that's what we see happening with Saul, that God put him in in place as a king, and Saul went power-hungry, and he thought it was all about him. How does Saul respond to this? What does he do? Well, uh, in verse 13, he directly lies to to, uh, Samuel. He says, I've kept the commandments of the Lord, and I love this. Saul says, then what is this bleeding of sheep? In my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear. You know when someone just kind of slaps you across the face with something that you hear? and you, Ooh, okay. Well, Saul doubles down. He says, I have kept the commandments of the Lord. So first of all, he, he, he directly lies. And then secondly, what does he do? He, he goes on from there and he says that, what, You know, Samuel, yeah, it's true. We have kept some of these things. But it wasn't me. It was the people that did it. I didn't do it. The people did it. And they wanted to keep some of the, the cattle for, for good reason, for sacrificing the Lord. But yeah, they messed up. It wasn't me. And then he goes on from there. Uh, and in verse 19, he, he actually highlights partial obedience. This is what we do when we sin. Uh, whenever anyone confronts us with, with our sin, we will lie about it. We will shift the blame. It's not my fault. It's your fault. And then we'll try to highlight some of the good things we've done to make up for it in paying penance. Here's what we see here, that in Saul's sin and in the people's sin because of Saul's sin, he doesn't know or love Yahweh. He doesn't want Yahweh. What does he want? He wants Yahweh's stuff. He wants the things that God can give him. Saul's true God is not God, but the stuff of the world. 
And what he does in his religion, because as we've seen over and over and over, Saul is very religious. But he tries to use his religion to control God. And that's what making sacrifices to God is all about. I want to control God, and so I'm going to do something that I know God likes to get him back on my side. And so he says, yeah, I'm going to keep some of these cattle for myself, but I'm going to sacrifice a good number of them to God, and that'll make God happy. That'll pacify God. That's what religion is. But what does God really want? What's God's desire? We're told that the Lord has no delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but more what he wants is obedience. You see, what God wants is not our stuff and what we can give him. He wants our heart. Yet every single week we pick up a tithe as an act of worship. What do you think when you put that money or that check into into the offering plate? Do you think, God is going to love me more because I'm doing this? Well, that reveals that you're just trying to get God on your side. That you actually don't love God, you love what he gives you. Instead, what God wants is, I'm doing this because... God loves me and has given me so much that I'm going to be obedient to him in giving this to him. It's, it's not about you, but it's about God. It's an, truly an act of worship. What God says he wants over everything else is not sacrifices. Sacrifices merely reveal that we don't care about God. Now, he does command sacrifices, but what he wants more than anything else is obedience to him. We have this saying that we've heard from Paul Tripp. Uh, whenever you're, you're teaching your children, it's this, that obedience happens all the way right away with a happy heart. We will be obedient to God all the way, but we won't do it right away. We'll take our time. We'll be obedient to God maybe right away, but not all the way. And very rarely will we do it with a happy heart. How often are you asked to do something by your spouse and you do it grudgingly? I was doing my thing, and you interrupted my pleasure. That's not love. That's not sacrifice. That's not true obedience and care. Because what, And that reveals our heart as well, what we really think about God. What God really wants is our heart. He wants us to do something because we know, not that it's going to get us stuff, but because we know it's going to give us more and more knowledge of God, his care, and his love for us. Very quickly, I want to show you God's decision. What did God do? Well, God rejects Saul as king. And this has been coming for a while. He said it before. Saul is going to be rejected. But why did God reject Saul? I want you to see this. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. That is, uh, well, there's some things happening there. But, but Saul's act of keeping the sheep is, is, is rebellion. And it's just like... Uh, divination and idolatry and all these other things. And he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul is rejected because he rejected God. God has been very patient with Saul. He's been king now for 20 years, over and over and over. Samuel has been coming to Saul, going, repent, 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 and Saul refuses to do it. And so now God says... I've had enough. Well, he's actually going to give 20 more years to Saul to be more patient. But eventually God says, enough is enough. I've rejected you. And you and I need to understand this. God only ever rejects people who reject him. God only ever rejects people who reject him. 
God is not wishy-washy. He's not capricious. He always works justice. Except for this one time. And it wasn't that he worked justice. God only rejected one man ever who never rejected him, and that's Jesus Christ. Here in this story and all through 1 Samuel, we've been given a picture of a terrible king. A king who doesn't love God, who doesn't do the, the desire, uh, desires of God, who doesn't care about God. And God rejects him. Jesus Christ is the better king. Jesus Christ is the king that completely and perfectly fulfills the law of God for us. He, he keeps the law because we couldn't keep it. He has such a great and amazing relationship with God his Father that they are in tune with one another. There's never any static. There's never any need for Jesus to change the station or to tune it to get better reception because he and God are constantly in lockstep. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of his ministry, God says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All of you should listen to him. But then at the end of his ministry, you see Jesus Christ on the cross. And what's happening there that God the Father is rejecting His beloved son, who has done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve it. Why did he do that? He did that because you and I, as sinners, reject God. We can't keep the law. We can't fulfill the law. We can't do the things that we are required to do before God. And so Jesus Christ, who did not deserve God's wrath and displeasure, went to the cross, taking the wrath and displeasure that we deserve on himself. And he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfect record so that we can stand before God. So that God doesn't look at us and say, I reject you because you reject me. But I accept you because my son, Jesus Christ, accepted me for you. He substituted himself. Have you understood what Christ, the great king, has done for you? Have you seen him as the better Saul who isn't, who is rejected, but not because he deserved it, but because you and I deserved it? And the great comfort of this passage for us is that God's regret motivates him to send the better king. Right after Saul comes David. And actually, whenever we pick up 1 Samuel again, we're going to look at the great king, David, the one whom God has chosen to lead his people. And that king constantly turns his people back to God. God's regret motivates him to send the great king for us. And because the better king was rejected, you and I won't be by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Our great Father, we thank you for giving us this word. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, work it in our hearts. That it would uh, transform us. That we would see your glory that we would see your greatness, that we would understand that in your complex emotional uh, state and the things that you do, that you are so great, that you are like us, and yet you're not like us in ways that are hard for us to comprehend. I pray, Father, that we would uh, receive the comfort uh, that is only ours through Christ by the work of the Spirit, and that we would continue to understand and, and see your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name.